Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, and it's October, so you know what that means. It means it's Halloween times here at, at uh, More Than One Lesson, so for those that, uh, that don't know, for the entire month of October, we will be discussing horror movies, uh, or if not horror movies that are uh, macabre in other ways, uh, so like in the past, we've done episodes about Coraline and Paranorman and that sort of thing. So, uh, not necessarily scary movies, but uh, films that can be nonetheless uh, unsettling. So, uh, so that is what we're going to be doing all month long. So, come back to more than one lesson every week and check out the movies we're talking about. Uh, but uh, look, you can't talk about horror without talking to Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing very well. So. Today we're going to be talking about Jordan Peele's Get Out, but I wanted to ask what's going on over at the Fear of God, your horror-based podcast. <laughs> Do you guys celebrate Halloween times? Or I guess it's always Halloween times there. It's, it's Halloween all year long. So ironically, we're kind of the Halloween Grinches. You know, like we, we do a deep pivot and all through October, we're covering nothing but Hallmark movies. Um, that's not remotely true. That would be kind of funny though. <laughs> um, no, so what we did last year was we did... Um, listener voted favorite films of the 1990s. And this year for October, we are counting down the listener voted favorite films of the 1980s. All right. It, it seems like everybody's in an 80s mood lately. And, so like uh, Driving Miss Daisy's up there, The Last Emperor. Ab absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I assume you're talking about horror films yes, of the 80s yes. specifically. Um, and so we've been counting down every episode. We've tallied the top 100. We've been counting down inside the episodes the top, uh, counting down the top 50, mm -hmm. 10 at a time. We'll discuss those a little bit. And then the episodes are centered around selections from the listener voted top 10. So, uh, so like by the time this airs, uh, I know we've already released our American Werewolf in London episode. Okay. Um, by the time this airs, it may or may not be uh, uh, spoiler alert. If you listen to fear of God, the very next one on the horizon is the evil dead. Um, and so then we have some other fun ones that are on the horizon, but, uh, but yeah, so we've just been doing hashtag. I love the eighties. Um, and then we've got some pretty pretty cool things on the horizon that we're pretty excited about that I, I don't want to say too much about in case the scheduling gets a little wonky, but yeah, we've got some fun stuff, but right now we're in the deep, the deeps of the eighties, the depths of the eighties. I think depths is the word that I was. Okay. Intending. All right. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> I just figured I would commit to it and see if anybody noticed. Uh, yeah, I, I noticed Reed. <laughs> all right. So maybe try to be a cut above when the, the boss is in town. That's a good point. That's a fair point. Mea culpa. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, peek behind the curtain, everybody. It's late, <laughs> and I'm tired, and Reed is tired. So let's uh, hope that this episode will be listenable at all. Um, it remains to be seen. Uh, as mentioned, today we will be talking about Jordan Peele's Get Out, starring, among others, Daniel Kaluuya, Allison Williams, Catherine Keener, Bradley Whitford, uh, Lakeith Stanfield and the always reliable Stephen Root. So, uh, a little bit of background. So, the film was remarkably popular uh, at the yeah. time. Uh, if you're listening to this, I'm sure I don't need to tell you much about Get Out because you have likely seen it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film that was a surprise. Nobody saw it coming. Yeah. Um, it was advertised and it's one, it, it feels like it was one of those movies that happens every once in a while where you see your first trailer and then you realize, Oh, it's coming out in like three weeks. Right. Um, it was one of those. Um, I'm reminded this is something David and I talk about over at battleship pretension that, uh, like 10 Cloverfield lane was like that, right. where, right. Uh, it was like a month between the first advertisement and the release of the film. And it was so, it was so refreshing. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, because as opposed to something like, uh, the Cloverfield paradox or something like that, where they reveal it and then it's available in two hours. Yeah. Uh, having a few weeks of anticipation as opposed to six months or a year, right. uh, a few weeks, that's about right mm -hmm. because like, Oh boy, now I'm excited. But I think, uh, I think it works best for something like horror. Um, mm. because horror, no, unless it's like, a uh, uh, a reboot or something like that. Horror is very seldom, at least for most people, uh, an event as right. opposed to in Avengers infinity war, which you can advertise sure. for a year and the bigness of the film can sort of bear that out. But right. I think the only time that horror would be like an event is, I mean, we're going to experience one is, uh, is Halloween. So sure. So the new Halloween is, is sure. unquestionably going to be sort of an event for horror fans, but that's an established right. franchise yeah. that's being revisited after nine years, after nearly a decade. And I would say last year's it was similar, yeah, but right. again, that's based on, it was based on a pre-existing thing. So sure. it's not necessarily, it wasn't, I guess it was kind of a reboot, um, or just In a, sense, sure. a reimagining or whatever, but, uh, yeah, it was a popular book, a popular miniseries. So people already had associations with it as opposed to get out, right. which if any, if anybody felt any relation to, you know, any, uh, previous connection to it, it's wait, Jordan Peele, right? Exactly. The guy, the comedian, the, the, you know, one half of Key and Peele who does sketches and such. <laughs> uh, but in retrospect, it makes perfect sense because if you look at Key and Peele's like genre parody sketches, mm -hmm. they're always just dead on. Yeah. Like tonally they're perfect. And you realize, okay, that, that kind of makes sense, um, that he would be able to transition into the horror genre so, so seamlessly because there's definitely a filmic quality to his show. Um, but then I would also say that it is not at all unheard of to have quite a few laughs in a horror movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and get out has them. Oh, I'm sure it's, we'll yeah. it's, it's almost a full on horror comedy. I mm -hmm. would say, mm -hmm. um, especially when with the character of rod, Oh, uh, man, he's who, hysterical. 
but he's not he's not the 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 lone source of of uh comic relief um although i i guess a lot of the comedy from the film comes from the audacity of what's going on and right. just you're laughing right. from incredulity like i can't right. believe they're doing this <laughs> right um but yeah i I do think that when it comes right down to it, there's a reason that horror and comedy go so well together. And I think it's because a scream and a laugh are both involuntary, sudden reactions. Yeah, very much so. Um, They're very visceral. Yeah. By nature, when when someone has affected them in you organically, yeah. then they're hard to control. Yeah. And in both cases, as opposed to, you know, crying is also an involuntary reaction, mm-hmm. but it's not a sudden one. Sure. It is. It's one that comes from, uh, it could be a, an intellectual understanding of this, of the story, or it could be uh, an emotional reaction to like a musical swell or something like that, right. as opposed to horror uh, or comedy where it is often a surprise. It is yeah. often sudden and you find yourself, whoa, like it, mm-hmm. it gets you and either you are screaming or you are laughing. Um, and, and this film has plenty of both. Mm-hmm. And so I was, by the time I saw it though, I saw it long after the theater. Um, oh, so many people I was, I was at school at the time. And so many of my fellow students were just saying, oh my gosh, it's so great. You got to see it. You got to see it. But because there was such a political aspect to the conversation, my thought was, I do not want to give my fellow students the satisfaction of my seeing it right now. I will sure. wait until some of that conversation has died down. Right. And right. I, and that way I can see if people are still talking about it artistically or if they're just caught up in the moment. So when I did see it, uh, it was, it was months later and I saw it with my friend, uh, we watched it on, on, uh, Blu-ray mm. and admittedly it really got me. Like got I, yeah. I laughed. I, I'm not sure if I would say I was frightened cause it's not necessarily that kind of thing where right, I'm worried. Right. Um, but it's, it's disturbing. It's one of those types of things. And so I was appropriately disturbed and I was laughing and Mm -hmm. I under, and I totally uh, understood and appreciated uh, the way that it went about its its political uh, contribution. Um, And on top of everything else, I thought the performances were marvelous uh, all around. Absolutely. Which we'll talk about in a moment, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, I apologize for the interjection, but uh, you, you said something that, uh, interested me in iota and i'll just I'll, I'll do this briefly but i do think there's a tremendous misunderstanding about horror as a as a genre and i almost feel a little sad that it has become so irrevocably linked to scary yeah this is, this is something that uh, that i have said uh, on the show on bp in the past that like when it, it's it's interesting that movies like Scream say, what's your favorite scary movie as mm-hmm. opposed to what's your favorite horror movie. Right. And we do connect the two. But when people look back at the old Universal movies, they say, well, those aren't very scary. It's like, no, but the idea of a walking corpse is horrific. Yeah. It's a yeah. horrific idea. Yeah. Just like this guy who uh, lives uh, by drinking the blood of uh, innocent people. <laughs> right. That is also horrific. You know, right. it's 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 not the same. 
Sure. But, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I no, totally, no, yeah. no. It's uh, but but I do think it's worth considering, especially because we're in October. Um, there can be a lot of debate, and sometimes people can. You and I were talking off mic about dismissals. A lot of times, people can dismiss something. Oh, this was supposed to be a horror film, but it's not scary. As right. if the only intention behind something in the horror or macabre genre were to to frighten, because um, there can be a sense of dread that can awaken yeah. that that might not be terribly scary. Um, a sense of disturbance. Absolutely. Uh, a sense of uh, sometimes, you know, terror or suspense. Um, all of these are elements of the horror genre that I think are very every bit as valid and vital yeah. as scares, as something that's going to make you jump or make you feel afraid to, you know, want to turn on a light or something like that. They're all part and parcel to this this exploration of the dark, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and and you know, horror is so often which is why it can work really well for political reasons. It's, it's peeling something back. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes quite literally it's peeling back skin or something like that, but (laughs) it's, it's, here's the world we all live in. Now let's for a moment, let for two hours, we're going to pull the, we're going to, you know, pull back the curtain and we're going to see something that we might all kind of know, but we don't want to admit. And it could be, in fact, it often is dealing with our own mortality. The idea that uh, horrendous things can happen uh, at any moment right. with with almost no warning and no explanation. And so, uh, and again, like there's the world we live in, and then there's the stuff that goes on underneath that will occasionally, uh, uh, occasionally disturb that. Right. And so, right. and that's very much what Get Out is about. I mean, it's, it is a ridiculous concept, <laughs> but it comes at a time politically when, uh, people are, you know, you talk about police shootings of, of, you know, unarmed black men and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so clearly Jordan Peele, who is himself, uh, African American, um, clearly that resonated with him, but he wanted to explore it in a way that was just so over the top and ridiculous, but there's plenty of precedent for that. Our companion film is night of the living dead and George Romero is no stranger to exploring in depth political themes, uh, in the midst of extreme horrific imagery. And so what I will say is that, uh, you know, regardless of, you know, some of the, some of the, points being made about, you know, black lives matter and, and all of the stuff that's been happening the last few years. Um, some of it is, is up for debate. And so, but I will put that to the side and just say that it's a film that acknowledges that when you are, whether it be black or whatever, when you are a minority, Mm -hmm. like quite literally the bulk of people don't look like you. And so you're going to feel just very out of place, whether the people around you are actively trying to make you feel comfortable or they're not paying attention to you at all, or they're making, trying to make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, you are going to be aware of how you stand out. Um, last year, Jen and I were in Asia for three weeks. Hmm. Uh, we were in Japan and China and South Korea. And it took about a week for me to realize like, it's been a while since I, since I've seen someone that looks like me. And 
And that's not a thing. And it didn't necessarily bother me. It's just, I was aware of it. Sure. And so, you know, and then I came back here and a lot of people look like me. Right. Um, right. Now, admittedly, I live in Southern California and in my neighborhood, I, I <laughs> definitely a minority as well, but I don't have to travel very far to be in the midst of people that look like me. And so, sure. like I said, even if people are trying to make you feel better, uh, for, you know, or trying to make you feel like, oh no, you fit in. It's fine. They're still singling you where uh, singling you out. Like you're aware that you, that you don't visually look like everybody else and they are aware of it too. Sure. And so this is a film that, that is built on that principle, mm-hmm. um, specifically. And, and it toys with the idea that, uh, the, the, the nice affluent white people of this film are, you know, they're, they're good liberals mm-hmm. and they, they are sympathetic towards, uh, towards the, the plight of the black person. And, right. you know, yeah. they would have voted for Obama a third time if they could have <laughs> all that sort of thing. And it suggests that, Hey, just because someone is saying all the right things, that doesn't change the fact that they still are seeing you in this case, seeing you as a black man first, instead mm-hmm. of like a, another equal human being, you know, they see you and then it goes on further. They see you as a commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's just, there's definitely a lot going on politically with the film. And I think it's, and I think it's handled wonderfully almost precisely because Jordan Peele is so committed to the, just the audacity of the story itself. Right. Right. That, uh, that the political themes can just be right out there and it doesn't feel like it's ham fisted to me. And that's part of what, I mean, the, my anchor point for this kind of thing Mm -hmm. goes, there's, there's examples of it that are older, but my anchor for it goes back to Rod Serling with the twilight zone. Sure. You take political or social complications and instead of like reducing them down to their basest form, you blow them up. You explode them to the most exaggerative point of it to make your case for how absurd the entire subject is and and how some of the things that people have normalized in their own life, that's the other advantage to putting, as you say, in in an audacious situation, then it brings to light how we've normalized audacious things for ourselves. Yeah. We've normalized things like um, uh, the... It seems absurd that someone would feel entitled to the body of another human being. Yeah. And yet, if we're if we're thoughtful enough about maybe not even in the race exclusively in the race conversation. Yeah. We might recognize how we ourselves might feel entitled to another person's personhood, yeah. as it were. Yeah. And uh, and and so again, the horror genre, but it's the same thing with fantasy and science fiction. Science fiction does it quite a bit. Um, where they, again, they exaggerate it out. And as you keep saying, audacious, they, they make it very audacious to yeah. the degree that we recognize how audacious our own normalized beliefs might be or how we might be playing into things that in other contexts might seem quite audacious. And that's in other contexts. You know, right. if you were to make, I mean, if you were to make a drama, just a straightforward kitchen sink drama that was as to go back to this word as audacious as get out in Mm -hmm. its exploration of themes, people will be rolling their eyes. Yeah. Right. 
I mean, I guess if you're Douglas Sirk, you could make it work. <laughs> but beyond that, people would be like, this is the bad kind of melodrama. This is as preachy as can be. Right. I'm, I'm tired. This thing is making me tired. <laughs> but in with the trappings of horror or science fiction or any kind of genre, uh, yeah, really any kind of genre, because you, you, know, you can do it with Westerns. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can comment on what's going on today by setting it in the future, mm -hmm. in the past, or an alternate present where these horrific things can happen. Sure. Uh, and you can, it, it really, it never ceases to amaze me what people can get away with mm -hmm. in horror yeah. uh, thematically. Sure. Um, you know, I, few movies have made me really think about my faith as much as the wicker man. Oh man, that's a beautiful film. It's, it's a really great movie and yeah. one where, I mean, I've seen sort of anti, not that I not that I think the wicker man is necessarily anti-religious, but, mm. um, it could be seen that way. And it definitely gets you thinking about what's the difference between my faith and others. I've seen documentaries like that. I've seen, sure. uh, TV shows that contain that and, and movies that contain that. And in all of them, it's like, okay, all right, you're making your point, but I don't agree with your point. I, all I'm doing is arguing with them, mm -hmm. but with the wicker man, I'm so involved in the story and the tone right, right. and the delightful performances that suddenly I find myself in this position where I'm like, oh, Christopher Lee's making a good point here. <laughs> That's interesting. This is really, uh. It makes me right. almost uncomfortable right. uh, how, how interesting it's, it's, you know, how well it's making its points in the midst of, of these sure. genre trappings. So yeah, it's, it, it, it seems counterintuitive, but, uh, but anybody who is a fan of, like you said, horror or science fiction mm -hmm. can absolutely understand how this works. Oh, absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll make a comment about the Wicker Man and then pull it back into get out. Um, so we, we shameless plug, we covered wicker man on fear of God. And one of the observations that we made is that this is a film that treats religion very seriously. Mm -hmm. It takes it seriously and treats it seriously, yeah. not treating one belief system seriously, right. but religious belief in toto seriously. Yeah. And so because it does that, that's what I think lingers some of that impact. The with get out, I feel like it, and and I heard some criticism leveled at it for being too preachy. Yeah, but I feel like it's taking its its problems seriously. It's taking the the problems of its characters seriously, even yeah. in the midst of very absurd problems. Yeah, it's it's treating them very um, very sincerely, and yeah. and it. I, I just feel like that's part of its strength and part of its um, more more compelling elements is just the fact that it's not constantly winking at you. It's right. not making inside jokes or cheap referential things. When it does that, it's very much uh, uh, self-aware that mm -hmm. it's doing that. Like when they say that, oh, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. In, in the moments where those characters say that, you're supposed to feel like that's just ridiculous. You know, yeah. like they're pandering at this point. You yeah. as the audience are supposed to feel in that moment like that's what they're doing. And that's what I mean by it taking it seriously is it's it's not naive. At least it didn't feel so to me. It's not naive about some of the observations it's making. Right.
Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. And I remember, um, when, <laughs> when David, uh, mentioned, so, uh, you know, obviously given the nature of the film, we're going to talk a little bit about politics or more specifically the fact that there is a political component to the film. Uh, so listeners know that I'm, uh, somewhat right leaning, not somewhat I am, uh, right leaning. And then David is, uh, pretty far left. Mm. And when he was telling me, uh, that he saw the film and he's like, he goes, Oh man, he goes like, as a liberal, I'm not used to movies like talking about like liberal racism and just, uh, yeah. you know, goes really got me thinking. And I felt like I shouldn't say anything. And I said, mm -hmm. and, and at the time I believe I said, Oh, poor you. <laughs> Hollywood is accusing you of something that must be so hard That's for you. Um, you know, because it's certainly something that I'm, that I'm extremely used to as mm -hmm. a, as a, as a, conservative. And so, uh, but that's the thing is, is, you know, mission accomplished. It would have been, first off, it would have been very easy for Jordan Peele to just make these characters just standard rednecks mm, who apps, right. who are 100% racist. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think it's, it's so much more insightful and probably sincere. Jordan Peele is in the Hollywood community, which politically tends to lean a little bit left. <laughs> and so I'm sure, I'm sure he does not run across like the stereotypical rednecks very often. Right. But the patronizing white liberals who feel very good about themselves for saying the right thing right. to the, the, you know, their, their black entertainers, <laughs> um, that is something I'm sure he's encountered a lot more. Yeah. And so I think he felt, I think he really wanted to sort of take some of the air out of, of certain viewers who might pat, the, you know, white viewers who would pat themselves on the back for seeing get out at all. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it, it just, what he is trying to do on every level, like there are multiple levels, even to his political goals, uh, mm -hmm. with the film. And, and I think he, he just knocks it out of the park. Um, I think it's a remarkably so, and then to move on to just the way that it's made as a directorial debut, it's so self-assured. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was talking earlier about 10 Cloverfield lane, which is also a theatrical uh, feature film debut by right. Dan Trachtenberg. And just, and that is also a, just a, a, an astonishing film for a first time director. Right. right. And so for get out, to be as visually gorgeous as it is and, and to feature, uh, this level of acting, which you don't really expect from horror movies. Right. Um, I mean, this is a film that got a best actor nomination Yeah, for yeah, Daniel Kaluuya. Understandably. So he's great. And something that I've said for a long time, and I'm sure you have thought it is that, the lead actors, the ones that don't die, uh, in horror movies. And I guess the ones that do die as well, but the lead actors in horror movies have some of the hardest work have, you know, yes. some of the hardest acting you'll have ever have to do pure unrelenting terror. I mean, what's her name? Marilyn Burns from, from, uh, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Yes. Oh, where the last 30 minutes yeah. is just Perpetual constant screaming. fear. Yes. And she has to find new ways to sell it, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, without it becoming monotonous. Like that's very difficult to do. And, uh, 
And so I was very excited that Daniel Kaluuya was nominated because sure, it, it was the Academy acknowledging that, you know what? Like, this is hard work. Right. Um, so but he yeah. was also astute of Peel to populate the film with only a couple of exceptions with people who were not household names. Right. But who have they were not green. These these were oh, yeah. Catherine Keener, Bradley Whitford, Stephen Root. They were seasoned people yeah. who know how to affect a moment mm-hmm. and be uh, and and accomplish what they set out to do and make themselves very compelling in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think it was really astute of him to um, to anchor his film and uh, well populate is is more the word I'm after to uh, to fill it with people who he could really count on for being compelling and believable character actors. And I think that was to his credit. Yeah. And, and I think Catherine Keener and Bradley Whitford is, is very good in his role, but I think there is more to the Catherine Keener character because she's the, the hypnotist. And so she has to really like zero in on a person's issues and that sort of thing. And it actually makes her, more sinister. Yeah. The fact that she is able to be vulnerable and, and respond in a seemingly loving way to your vulnerability. Uh, but that she's so in- inherently predatory, which is oh like, gosh. Oh, I, I want bad things to happen. Yeah. To her, you oh, know? yeah. Oh, um, yeah. and so, uh, so yeah, I will say that, uh, with the with the exception of the Florida project, I've not been a big fan of Caleb Landry Jones. Yeah, is that the brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I he's one of the. I hate saying this about anybody because probably everybody showed up, worked very hard, and gave mm-hmm. it the best of intentions. But uh, he is something of a weak link to me in the film. I feel like he is um, his motivations are so extreme compared to what the rest right. of the Armitage family are doing that it seems to undercut the entire conceit of why they're trying to lure this man in. And I would I would wonder, like, okay, so is this, uh, is it a script issue? And I don't think it is, honestly. No. I think there are a lot of ways to play that character. Caleb Landry Jones is a guy who always seemed... I, I would say always, I'll talk about the Florida project in a moment. Mm. He usually just seems to be acting with a capital A. Like it just, right. I feel like at right. any moment he should just like, man, just settle. It's <laughs> fine. Trust the writing, trust the character and trust yourself. Yeah. You don't need to be working this hard mm-hmm. to sell whatever it is you're trying to sell. But then I see him in the Florida project, which is, I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, I did. Yeah, I have. He plays Willem Dafoe's son. Yes very naturalistic performance mm-hmm. and a very soulful one sure. and one that works really well. So I look at that and I realize like, okay, well, I guess it depends. I guess he really responds to the actors around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if the, if the director is saying like, Hey, play this down a little bit. Uh, it's nice to know he's able to do it. Sure. Um, which I guess ultimately means that Jordan Peele could have said, Hey, tone it down. And right. he didn't. Right. Uh, which I think is, is, is a mistake. I like the idea that the brother is unhinged in certain ways. Yeah. Um, you know, it could be that he does seem to have a drinking problem Mm -hmm. and that's interesting because what caused it? Does he feel kind of bad about what he does? Mm, Um, 
is dehumanizing his victims the only way he's able to allow himself to do this at all? You know, the other characters seem perfectly able to treat their victims as full on people. Yeah. And then, but maybe he's unable to do that. So the only way that he has to just, he basically has to totally commit to being a monster. Yeah. There's like, all of that is in the character and I just don't think he necessarily plays it like that. And it's, and I did find it very distracting. And I think probably the, yeah, the, the one that's, it's interesting. You talked about Catherine Keener being terribly sinister, but Allison Williams, oh boy, like the premise behind because all of these people essentially have to play act for a weekend. Yeah, she's got to establish at least yeah. weeks, if not months, of a relationship. Yeah, and the fact that she has to pretend to be invested in a person for that extended period of time. Yeah, I mean, she's clearly just a, a, a psychopath. She's she's got n- morally numb, just yeah. utterly numb. Yeah. And um and so yeah, that's the she's the one ultimately that sort of frightens me the most mm-hmm. is just that that notion that somebody can pretend that much for that long in a relationship yeah. with these ulterior motives that were there from the very beginning. You know, if you want to look at it a certain way, when you realize that it's this entire family that is doing this and has been doing it for years and they're in this large plantation type house, you know, far away from civilization, this really is more like, this is like the liberal Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) where they just, in their own way, just kind of feast upon the people that that come in except they lure this is more they lure them in as opposed to oh someone has walked into my house well obviously i need to kill them with this hammer um (laughs) but uh and so i do find that kind of interesting but yeah her character and from a from a dramatic standpoint she she needs to seem to be on his side for a good long while right and she does seem to be on his side. And then finally, when she says, you know, like, you know, I can't give you the keys, oh right? My gosh. And you're like, oh, that's, and that's, that's when the real horror of the situation comes in. When right. you realize you have no allies. Yeah. Right, right, right. And you never had them. Mm. That's the other thing. Literally the moment he showed up, everybody on that farm, on that, it's not a farm, but uh, in the building yeah. and then all of the guests, everybody is in the know mm-hmm. except you. Right. And you are completely at the mercy of these other people. Oh my like gosh. that is, that is really scary. Oh, absolutely. The, the scene where he walks upstairs, the yeah. entire party is taking place down, down on the uh, main level. Mm-hmm. But then he walks upstairs and they all just look, <laughs> they stop the conversation and yeah. just look up at him. That's so chilling. And I, I, that is, I love the way you put that, that you re- really, recognizing that you have no allies, that there's nobody on your side. And I can imagine, so I've made the joke multiple times that, I mean, I am a straight, white, middle-class, Christian American male. I mean, there's mm-hmm. like, I am the textbook definition yeah. of uh, the, the, the no oppression in, in, yeah. in my family history, like really whatsoever. And so it's, it's very foreign to me. I can recognize Mm -hmm. it in a philosophical sense, but it's very foreign to me to look around and think like, oh yeah, I, I literally have nobody that I can connect with 
about anything right. because I can probably find somebody. I'm I'm going to be very uh, reductive and broad for a moment, but um, I can find somebody to connect to simply because we're both white, or I can find something to connect right. to simply because we're both men, or because we're both happen to be Christians, or something else. There's all these little connecting points, and it's difficult for me to truly understand what it must be like to stand in the midst of a place and look around and see no connecting points anywhere. And the realization that you cannot appeal to anybody's humanity, right. you know, right. It, it's it, to, I'm, I'm, we've, we've already done Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> as a companion film. Otherwise I would say that's our companion film. That now. would have been a good one. Um, yeah. But I think Night of Living Dead still works for a number of reasons. But, um, but yeah, there are horror movies. The ones that scare me the most are when, I mean, I guess this is the nature of, of almost any horror movie is, you know, you can't say to the xenomorph, you can't say to the shark, right, please don't do this. They're mm. animals. And so that is frightening, right. you know, right. uh, but then there are the people, uh, there are killers. Then you'd say like, well, Jason Voorhees and, and Michael Myers, they might as well be the xenomorph as sure. far as, right, right, right. you know, they, they are not fully there. And so the idea of like pleading for your life, um, and even if you made an intelligent argument about the value of your life, right. You know, the people in get out are, I mean, aside from the ridiculousness of what they do, they're reasonable people mm, mm -hmm. who are, who manage to like make a living and go through life absolutely being normal and, and absolutely understanding the concept of value. Right. 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 Um, right. and yet all of them have, they, they have all made this deal with themselves that this is a perfectly okay thing for them to do. Sure. Right. And let's talk about this thing that they do. Oh, man. So there are... So in, in horror movies, everybody has like a different thing that get... Or several different things that get to them. Yeah. You and I have spoken before, I don't think on the show, but it's something that is... It's weird for me to admit. In Alien, the concept of the alien gestating inside you and then bursting out is not to me that very disturbing. Right. Yeah, I agree. As opposed to The Fly, mm, where mm -hmm. you are turning into something un underneath your skin, and it's all of you. Yeah, right. And so when the skin comes off, you realize, oh my gosh, this thing, you've been this thing for a long time, and the only thing keeping it from being obvious was a thin layer of skin. That, to me, is disturbing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like turning into something as opposed to, of course, it looks so painful for the alien to like burst out of you, but it's such a short gestation period. Sure. And then once it bursts out, you're dead. Well, and it's still like you, like you pointed out, it's a thing that has happened to you versus a thing that you are like, right. My it's, I mean, because it makes my stomach churn every time I hear it, one of the most compelling lines in the fly to me is where he says, I, I'm saying I was an insect that dreamed he was a man. Yeah. And now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And I'm like, yeah. that is, 
that is horrendous, yeah. you know? And, and that's part of the horror of that to me is like, oh yeah, yeah you've, you've become this, like you are this thing versus yeah. this is something that has happened to you. Yeah. You are this thing. And I think there is definitely a difference. So one of the, one of the concepts, one of the horror concepts that gets me all the time is anything having to do with the brain, mm. whether it be in the film Hannibal, oh, where oh. he Poor cuts, Ray Liotta. yeah, he cuts <laughs> off the top of Ray Liotta's head and or skull, and then like cooks and feeds him his own brain, like part of his own brain. Oh, like that is Lord. so disturbing. And even just the image of his brain being exposed to the elements, like right, the right. like your brain is who you are. Sure. And literally like, and it needs to be protected. (laughs) You can't have a brain transplant because that's you. Yes. You can have a heart transplant. You can have anything else transplanted from somebody else and you can still be you. Right. Even a face, even a face transplant, you're still saying the things that you would say. Exactly. And so anything having to do with the brain is to me really horrifying. The scene in Starship Troopers, when, when the brain bug just jams that it's like straw like thing into the guy's skull and sucks his brains out. Like that's so horrifying to me. Right. Well, in get out, the plan here is they, they hypnotize and dope up, uh, these black men and then essentially scoop out their brain, Mm -hmm. leaving only, only like the part that connects to the rest of their body, the spinal sort of centrifuge. Yeah. And so then they implant somebody else's brain. So literally the, the body is, is all that's left. And so it's like, what do they do with the brain they're not using? Because it's not mm. just an exchange. Right. It's not oh, an yeah, exchange yeah, yeah. program yeah. where it's suddenly <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is in the body of Stephen Root, which <laughs> would, I guess, be a bummer. Um, <laughs> like, what? And it's like, oh, boy, I, I'm winded all the time now. Um, <laughs> Can't see a thing. And so, uh, you know, it's not that. It's literally, we have no use for right. your brain. Right. Who you are is not helpful to me at all. Mm -hmm. It's really just your body that we care about at all. So we're going to pull your brain out and basically discard it. Yeah. There'll be a little bit left, which in certain circumstances will emerge, but only temporarily. Um, But yeah, you're not, uh, you're not important. Like, and the idea of just like, of cutting open somebody's head, pulling out their brain and just throwing it away. Yeah. Is so genuinely horrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, g- good on you, Jordan Peele. You, you picked a very specifically terrifying concept for me, Tyler. Smith. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so to move on, um, was there anything else that you wanted to say about get out specifically before I move on to the campaign about film? the, no, no. I mean, I think because there has been, and I'm not being dismissive when I say this, there's been a mountain of conversation about get out. Yeah. And, um, I think most, I would agree with you guys most, have done a, uh, an episode about we it. We did. Yeah. 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 We did an episode where we actually had, uh, my friend Anthony Doris. We don't, we don't always approach subject matter this way, but this was a film where I said, I really want 
someone who can speak to the experience of being a black man. Sure. And so my friend Anthony was on the the show with us. Um, I felt like we had a really great conversation, and and uh, I would probably agree with the majority of most of the comments that get made about Get Out. Mm. Uh, m- most of the praiseworthy comments, the ones where people might be criticizing a thing or two, I will probably also say like, yeah, I can see your point to a degree. Um, so there's been a lot said about that already, and I don't know that there's there's too much more to add, except that I do agree it's a, it's a very s- just strikingly impressive debut feature, and I'm curious to see what Peel will do next. What's yeah. new on the horizon for him? Um, but I do think it's. I think this is more. It would be a shame if somebody walked away saying like, "Oh, it was just a a preachy horror film." Um, I think it's so much more than that. I think yeah. it's it's very thoughtful. I think it takes some risks and some chances and subverts a lot of the stereotypes in ways that I wasn't quite expecting. And so, yeah, I, I think Get Out is a really strong achievement. Yeah, and and yeah, it's more than just a preachy horror movie. It has some really fascinating visuals, really great performances, sure, genuine laughs. Oh, absolutely, yes, um, yes. And and it is just and it is so much what we're talking about. Just so many of the ideas and and images are horrific. Sure, just that one scene where the the main character Chris is like taking a walk at night. And just that one guy is just like running at full speed oh towards my gosh. him, yes. except not towards him. It's, uh, it's, that's a, yeah, it's yeah. so unsettling. So yeah. yeah, 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 I agree. And both, and those characters in general who seem to be, you know, servants and oh, around the house, but they're actually like the grandparents. Those performances are, are marvelous and so disturbing. Oh yes. Very um, much so. So, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 great. I don't know if I'd say it's perfect. I think it's great. It's just a genuinely great movie. And like I said, so self assured. Like he clearly just had an idea of what he wanted to do. Yeah, and he did it and committed to it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the film won best original screenplay. It was nominated for best picture, director, and actor. Um, I think it's, and it's interesting. I feel like the art direction was really great. I think it is edited wonderfully. And I do think that there's, I think there's a really good use of sound as there always kind of has to be in a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but just, just the way that the teacup is used from a a sound standpoint, Mm -hmm. just even stuff like that. And then concepts like the sunken place, Mm -hmm. uh, from a sound and visual stand standpoint, it is, it's an ambitious film. We keep using the word audacious, but it's also a very ambitious film. And, you know, a first feature usually isn't. That's true. It's usually just in general, it's usually very much in the person's, uh, you know, wheelhouse or their, their, their comfort zone. And this does not feel like it is. It Mm felt, it felt like it almost felt like Jordan Peele thought, well, look, I might only, I might only make one movie in my life, you know, right. uh, if this doesn't go well, so I might as well make it count. And this is what he came up with. So sure. all the more reason why, why, as you mentioned, why I'm definitely interested to see what he does next. Um, but anyway, so let's, so to go back to, um, I don't remember if this was his first film, but certainly an early film by George Romero's the 1968 night of the living dead. Oh yes. Um, you know, the, the first zombie movie as far as how we define zombies now right the concept of zombie had existed for a while often related to voodoo Mm -hmm. um white zombie from 1932 
Which is not that good of a movie. It's not. I, I keep thinking that it's going to be... Uh, every a cu- every couple of years, yeah. the film will hit my radar and be like, I need to watch that again. And then I watch it and I'm like, why did I feel the need to watch this yeah. again? I aside like from the... One, I mean, aside from the delight of having this like old Hungarian castle <laughs> in right, the right. Caribbean, uh, <laughs> you know, complete oh with just spider webs and like yeah. and it looks like, oh, it's very cold. Well, not... It's a tropical climate, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, Night of the Living Dead, I mean, you know, you said like, oh, well, so many, there have been a mount, there's been a mountain of conversation about Get Out. Well, there has been, in, there's been an entire Grand Tetons, uh, <laughs> of conversation about Night of the Living Dead. You know, we're exactly. not going to bring much new to that discussion, right, right. except that, uh, I love it. Oh, it's such a great movie. It's a film that rises in my esteem year on yeah like every single year it's just going to escalate just that much further how much respect and admiration and enjoyment that i get from night of the living dead and not to immediately jump to i prefer this to this uh, a lot of people say that dawn of the dead is is the better movie mm. <sighs> i don't think so it's good so it's very good here's the thing my i i saw dawn of the dead exactly once i saw it maybe 25 years ago okay but it is so terribly difficult to get your hands on right now like the, like <laughs> yeah that's true you, you have to it's it's not streaming anywhere legally and you even the like if you were to look up youtube for like a bootleg copy they're all yeah. weird weird time signatures and it just looks funky it's not proper um and then uh you can try to buy the dvd or blu-ray if you want to spend a couple hundred dollars yeah i was very lucky to get my hands on one back before any of this happened sure. yeah 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 um and i'm glad i did because for because a couple years ago for battleship retention we did a uh, Romero zombie movie commentary oh, sure. uh, yeah. series. And I did not know at the time just how difficult it would be to sure. acquire. And I was just like, Oh, I'm glad I already have it then. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, uh, I think night of the living dead, it just works. I, I hate to say it. I think black and white works really well. I it think does. It, it works does. in its favor. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this would be, and there have been colorized, yeah. versions of this and I don't prefer them. This yeah. this is a film that well, particularly Romero's vision of that first film, it requires the shadows. It requires yeah. the the his vision and his budget, I would say. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um but I I mean it does uh I mean it's it's a night. So I yeah. mean you you step outside and yes there is color. But it's almost as, and I'm speaking about the actual real world, De- depending on where you are, if you go into certain places, because it's nighttime, things will appear a bit yeah. black and white. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that is part and parcel to the aesthetic that makes this film so effective. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't like colorized versions of this. And I do understand, I think Dawn of the Dead the uh, Romero's Dawn of the Dead is from what I remember of it. And again, it has been more than two decades since I actually got to sit down and watch Mm -hmm. it again. Um, was the, um, I I definitely think it was probably grasping for more deliberate social commentary, maybe reaching for some, Uh, some more, um, uh, philosophical elements. Um, but there's a, here, uh, like the word that I'm using here feels a bit atrocious to use with the Night of the Living Dead, but there's a purity to that that first one. There's a yeah. There's sort of a straightforwardness to it that uh, that I really respond to very deeply. And I think it's more 
I think it's both more disturbing and more genuinely scary mm. than Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just, it feels, I, I, I don't remember what I was reading, but it was, uh, there was some review in a book that I had that was talking about Night of the Living Dead and just said that like that grainy old stock. Yeah makes the film itself makes the film feel as old as death itself. Like mm. there, it, it makes it kind of timeless in that way. Whereas sure. when you see uh Dawn of the dead, which is in color, you see the makeup choices right. where, where the zombies right. are oddly blue. And then you see the blood, which is way too vibrant of a reddish orange. Right. And it takes you and it reminds you of a different time in filmmaking. Sure. And I think it, and it, shoves you very firmly into 1978 right whereas night of living dead the oddly enough the fact that it's black and white and it just takes place on, in a farmhouse mm -hmm. uh it could take place really at any time i mean people don't have cell phones or anything like sure. that but yeah. uh i feel like the timelessness of it makes it uh more frightening yeah, I agree. um and I think I just, as far as the character archetypes, I mean, I think you just can't go wrong with all of the people in Night of the Living Dead. There's, yeah. you know, the the traumatized uh, female character, Barbara, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. then there's the unlikely hero in Ben. Mm -hmm. There's uh, this bickering couple, <laughs> the, the husband who, by the way, turns out to be right, oh, uh, right which is right, one of right. the things that I adore about the film is sure. that he doesn't get to enjoy the fact that he's right. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right. But I, I, I think it's it's interesting. I think Romero actually mentioned this, that he liked the idea that this guy who we see is so annoying and so cowardly, when the chips are down and Ben is alone, which is a terrifying concept to think about, Of course, when he's alone he defaults to that plan and that's the plan that works. It's right, There's right. a little bit of vindic. It's I like that the film, it doesn't say uh, the good guys are always right. And the bad guys are always wrong or the people mm -hmm. you like are always right. And the ones you don't are wrong. No. Some in a survival situation, sometimes the people you don't like are going to make the best suggestion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, so, and then there's the young couple that are just, Hey, they're just trying to make their way in the world. I just, I, I like it all so much and it all works. It just works so yeah, well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a big fan of night of living dead. It's one of my favorite movies uh, of all time. And so, uh, so in, I think it comes down. The reason that I picked it as the, as the companion film is, is actually kind of what I just said that, you know, there are a bunch of people hold up in this house and one by one, they all die. Right. Until Ben is the last one. Like even Barbara has gone after a certain point. Right. And Ben has to figure out what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Now it's at the end of the film, but similarly, similarly, pardon me, uh, Chris from get out, realizes now it turns out he was alone the whole time sure. but didn't know yeah. it right um but there comes this moment where these two black men are just being uh targeted by this group of people uh some of them more some of them mindless and then the others very willful yeah. uh and they have to figure out what can i do to get away from this sure um and so uh so that, and, and the fact that I think there is, regardless of what Romero says and, uh, you know, 
he has said that no it goes there's no racial component to uh <laughs> night of the living dead you know i cast the best actor for ben and he happened to be black now that probably is true but, i believe it sure but yeah. romero is not so dense a person right that he did not realize how this would look that in 1968 right when yeah, yeah in the midst of the civil rights oh, movement absolutely. yeah uh when the character of harry cooper mm-hmm. who's like the primary antagonist you kind you kind of wonder would he be pushing against ben so much not that cooper's played as like this redneck hick or anything sure, like that not at all but it's this idea that like would he be questioning ben so much if mm-hmm. ben were a white guy Right. It's hard to know. Yeah. And then some of that imagery there at the end of, of the actual rednecks, like kind of toying with the zombies, hanging them from trees, for example. Yes. And then eventually killing Ben, even though he is not a zombie. Right. But, you know, essentially they view him as a threat and they shoot him. And it turns out he wasn't a threat. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Uh, yeah. You know? And so once again, like there's just something about great movies that d- they just become relevant. Yeah. Give them yeah, a minute. It's true. Even it's if, true. you know, even if it's been, uh, 50 years, I guess, since, uh, since it came yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this is the 50th anniversary. Wow. That's nuts. That only just dawned on me. The film, uh, f- I mean, it doesn't feel more recent than that, but I guess it just, it's seen, and it doesn't even necessarily feel modern, but it definitely, if you'd ask me, Hey, is how old is night of living dead? I'd probably say like, ah, 30, 35 years. Right. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. But, uh, but yeah, so, so there uh, on top of, of the various other, uh, elements, I think the, the racial component to night of living dead and its connection to get out, I think, um, uh, caused me to to pick it as the companion film but um so looking at some of the the quotes from from both of these films um there's a lot of uh there's a lot of talk about in which characters are describing big groups you know yeah uh there's a very strange little half monologue in get out where Bradley Whitford's character is talking about deer. Yeah. 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 It yeah. does come out, come a little bit out of nowhere. And I feel like they could have led into it a little bit easier. Just, it just, he just jumps right into it. And I feel like it doesn't totally fit. Um, but there's a moment where Dean says, I don't mean to get on my high horse, but I'm telling you, I do not like the deer. I'm sick of it. They're taking over. They're like rats. They're destroying the ecosystem. I see a dead deer on the side of the road, and I think that's a start. Right? Well, I mean, it comes out of nowhere unless you're talking thematically. <laughs> and then suddenly, <laughs> sure. like, the idea, it's like, they're taking over. They're like rats. They're destroying the ecosystem. Sure. You could say that about, you know people have said that about groups of people in the past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, stuff like that has been said somewhat recently about, uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, Oh yes. yes. You know? And so I think, but again, it's about a large, you know, somebody demonizing a a large group, uh, or rather grouping it's in this case animals, but Mm -hmm. grouping them together and saying they're a problem. Right. Um, and then Chris says, all I know is sometimes when there's too many white people, I get nervous. Uh, which I do love that line. I do too. Yeah. Um, because I f- it be- that's the kind of line when we mentioned how honest the film is and that it's treating yeah. it sincerely. That is the kind of line that feels very real. Yeah. It feels like somebody who's sort of struggling with their identity in the midst of a greater culture. Yeah. Uh, and I don't say greater, you understand a larger culture. Yeah. And, um, 
I think that that's that's part of what it, it's interesting because it just speaks to this feeling of not belonging. Like I don't I don't belong in this yeah. place. And uh, and I just again I love the phrasing of it. I don't know how tightly Peel scripted everything. Like right. if that was a word for word beat, or right. if um, Daniel Kaluuya uh, like sort of improvised some element of that or yeah. said it, you know, said it in his own sort of specific flavor, but it's a very, it, the, the line resonates pretty strongly with me. Yeah. And, and what I like is that he, he doesn't seem to know why he's nervous. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't say, you know, you get too many white people together and I feel like they're going to kill me. Like, you know, right. yes, exactly. He, he yes. doesn't feel that it's more just the realization, you know, if you're, if you're alone, Mm-hmm. By which I mean, like, if if he is the the lone black guy in a group of six, sure, okay, he's gonna feel out of place. But if there are then ten mm-hmm. or twenty, and you, he's still the only one, the, the only the only black guy in the room, yeah, he's gonna g- get more nervous just be, just by virtue of the situation. I sure, think. oh yeah, um, and so. Uh, there is a, a really wonderful uh, monologue, uh, I didn't write it all down, from Ben in Night of the Living Dead, that I think really, you know, when you think of what Night of the Living Dead is, we all know what zombies are now. We all know what to expect of them. But there was a time when people didn't know about the concept, because it didn't exist, of the dead walking and gathering together in large groups and eating people. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. that... And so along with seeing it, we also get people, you know, the characters describing their own uh, experiences sure. with this. And so Ben, he says, he talks about being at a diner and he says, I noticed that the entire place had been encircled. There wasn't a sign of life left, except by now there are no more screams. I realized that I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things just standing there staring at me. I started to drive. I plowed. I just plowed right through them. They didn't move. They didn't run. They just stood there staring at me. I just wanted to crush them, and they scattered through the air like bugs. That This idea, I realized that I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things just standing there staring at me oh is such gosh. a terrifying concept. Yes, yes. And it's, and it's that, that's the thing is this, the, the silence, the way that they describe it, that like, you know, terrible things are happening, and he says there were no more screams. Now- as horrifying as hearing people scream can be, there's the realization that they might not be of any help to me, but there's another person there. Right. Yeah. And then the screams go away and you realize it's just me and 50 or 60 of these things. And it's just such a, such a, a horrifying concept. Um, and so, uh, I don't know why I wrote down this other this other uh, uh, quote, but one of my favorite characters in Night of the Living Dead is Sheriff McClellan, who uh, <laughs> who he's he kind of is a redneck type, but he doesn't sound like a redneck because it's you know Pennsylvania. Sure, sure. Um, but it's just such a delightful character, you know. Uh, I didn't write this quote down, but it's one of my favorites, which is uh, you know someone says. You know, are they are they slow moving, sheriff? He goes, yeah, they're dead. They're uh, all messed up. <laughs> um, it's a wonderful quote. Um, but yeah, he says, if you have a gun, shoot him in the head. That's a sure way to kill him. If you don't get yourself a club or a torch, beat him or burn him. They go up pretty easy. <laughs> I, I I love that. It's just such a 
And what I like is, is just to, to pivot briefly is how quickly this horrific nightmare of a situation gets kind of normalized. And then it's just one more thing to deal with. You right. Know? And it's just right, right, right. a sheriff being interviewed on TV and then very casually talking about like, here's how you deal with it. Right. You know? Right. Um, but that's the thing is out of that casual attitude, um, yeah, out of that casual attitude, he's like, he goes, hey, there's one uh, over there. Just uh, shoot him right between the eyes. Okay, that's a good shot. And meanwhile, right. we he's just killed the hero of our of our film. Yeah, another one for the fire. Another one for the fire. Yeah. Um, man, what a great movie. I just want to watch it right now. Um, so uh, <laughs> It is October. Like I know. Oh, man. Everybody goes. Everybody goes see it. And it's uh, it recently got a, a Criterion release. And it's a really beautiful transfer. I have been salivating for that Criterion release because yeah. I yeah I, I that that may be one that I uh, might gift myself a little Halloween gift this <laughs> this this year because um, yeah I I hear that it's an absolutely fantastic edition. Well, because that's the thing is, yeah, it was in the public domain for a long time, and sure. I think it still officially is. So just every company. Right. Every DVD company put out a version of Night of the Living Dead and didn't clean it up at all. Yeah. And there are just some really terrible versions. There was one that I saw that had like, like it just suddenly a chunk was gone, like a five minute chunk for no reason at all. Oh my gosh. And they clearly yeah. didn't pay any attention to it. Sure. Um, and then they, I think some DVD company had released like, I think a 30th or a 40th anniversary. And that was a pretty good transfer. But then I got this criterion and I Ugh. watched it. And I don't mean to, you know, say the criterion is the, is the end all be all. There are plenty of Blu-ray release, sure, uh, you know, sure. distribution companies that have really great transfers, but just this one is really, really good. And the movie looks marvelous. Oh, um, nice. so I wanted to talk about this, this concept of being alone in the face of enemies. Hmm. Uh, it could be in the face of a mob, you know, uh, a, a big, group of people that are just out to get you, or it could have to do with people that are conspiring against you. You know, sure. that is the situation in get out where even though there are, there is a large group, um, they're not all out, out to get this guy. And eventually I think they leave. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's just him against the family, which is a smaller group, but they know more, more information than he does. And so, right. So he's going up against, a conspiracy and one could say he's going up against a system that has been working for a very long time. Right. So, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that in kind of a, a strange way. So, uh, Psalm three, there's a, uh, it's a fairly short, uh, chapter in the book of Psalms. So I basically wrote all of it down. <laughs> Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you Lord are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though. Tens of thousands of uh, assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Mm. All right. Uh, and then Psalm 64, verses 2 through 9. Uh, I'm going to throw it to you. Sure. Uh, Psalm 64, 2 through 9 says, Hear me, my God, as I voice my complaint. 
Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. They shoot them from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their stares. They say, who will see it? They plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the human mind and heart are cunning. But God will shoot them with his arrows. They will suddenly be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. All people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. Okay. So I wanted to talk about this, uh, a little bit. Um, and then, and then I'm going to pivot to something uh, a little different. So, you know, I, I'm sure there are times, I certainly know there are times in life when I have felt alone and felt that people are against me, maybe not as a, as an organization, um, <laughs> right, right, right. but, uh, but I just feel like Nobody understands me, you know, mm. not for any racial reasons or anything like that, or really any demographic reasons, but just, sure. just mentally, I just, uh, you know, when you deal with depression and stuff, you often feel like no one understands you, even though, right. uh, you know, statistically several do, sure. um, in any, in any given situation. Um, so, but it's one thing to not feel understood. It's another thing when people seem to be working against you right. and you're just like, I didn't do anything to cause this. Right. 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 I'm just trying to, in fact, I'm just trying to do things right. And then somebody is, is like, has it out for me. Mm. And that can be so frustrating. And while I'm no, I don't think I would ever describe, uh, anybody as my enemy. Mm. Um, there are definitely times when it feels like I have enemies on all sides. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so there, you know, in, in those moments, I'm sure there, there's this concept of, of, you know, if God is for me, then who can be against me now when I was younger and certainly when I feel particularly alone and depressed and I think of that cause I've had friends say like, well, Hey, if God is for you, who can be against you? It's like, do you want me to list <laughs> right. the people that can right. be against me? Like, right. I'm not saying they're going to win. I'm just saying they can be against me yeah. pretty successfully. Yeah. Um, but it is this idea that, uh, Hopefully, if you're feeling that way, you know, sometimes just the fact that the Bible acknowledges something uh, is comforting to me. And the yeah. fact that that uh, in in Psalms like this concept, just somebody who feels frustrated and oppressed uh, and alone uh, calling out for God and sometimes calling out for God to like fight on his behalf. Yeah, right. Um, is, is very comforting. Um but what I did want to say, and, and please don't think that I'm making more points than I am. I did want to pivot, uh, because I wanted to take two different, uh, verses, uh, or, or passages and kind of tie them together because in these verses in Psalms, it's all about God striking down the wicked on behalf of the, the pure and the right. good. Um, something that we are very comforted by, you know, yeah. at the end of, of get out when Chris actually gets out. Sure. Um, sure. 
and does so, you know, taking down the whole family. Right. Uh, it's very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, extremely so. There's a there's a, a component to which violence feels like the right response. And that, Absolutely. And, and the, these particular passages of, from Psalms uh, points to the same thing, where it's like the, the, the feeling and the impulse that you want is for there to be some degree of violence that is something that will eradicate them or wipe them out. And specifically, it's there's something about people who don't think they'll ever get caught. Yeah. You know, and uh, honestly, if you look here in, in Psalms, like they encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their stairs. They say, right. who will see it? Yes. They plot right. injustice and say, they plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, what is it? The Armitage? That's the Armitage family. Like yeah. they've been doing this for a while. It's the perfect plan. And who will see it? Right. You know, they, they look so well to do. No one would ever suspect them doing this. Sure. And there's something so infuriating about the fact that like everyone is giving this person the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. They're hiding in plain sight. Nobody knows their heart, but they've revealed right. it to me and no one's going to believe me. Yeah, exactly. Um, but of course it's this idea that you can't hide from God. And so over and over in the Bible, we get like this promise of a, of a larger justice that mm. y- these people like they, they might do well here on earth. They might actually fool people here on earth, but they can't fool God right. and they right. will get what's coming to them eventually. And so we can take comfort in that, but here's what I'll say to bring, to bring in something that is not necessarily directly related mm. to, uh, to, the films, although they are, it is a little bit. Uh, so Luke 23 verses 32, 32 through 43, two other men, both criminals were also let out with him to be executed. The him here is uh, Jesus, by the way. Uh, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting uh, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he Mm. said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I wanted, what I wanted to talk about is to, to bring in part of what we're talking about, which is Jesus was alone. He had people on his side and then slowly but surely people turned away from him. People denied him. Right. And he was all alone up there on the cross. And other people are even mocking him and saying like, Save, you know, save yourself. Literally do what we're talking about here in Psalm. Right. You know, break the teeth of your enemies. Like if you are who you say you are, why don't you do that? Sure. And so what I, what I look at here is, and, and instead of, of saying like, uh, God, uh, kill everybody here, please. <laughs> uh, and then let me go. He doesn't say that. He says, forgive them. And so if we look at these passage, passages in Psalm 
and then this one in Luke, we see the way people behave. They can get together in large groups. They're capable of tremendous cunning and evil, and they can sneer at good mm. uh, and be mocking. They like That's what people can do. And what I like is that God promises us who so frequently experience this type of frustration and, and sometimes this type of oppression, even if it's just emotional. Right. Um, and some of us very literal oppression. Um, you know, we experience this and God says, Hey, this is nothing new. They will get what's coming to them. Don't worry. Right. Right. But then when it comes time for God himself in the, in the form of Jesus to, to fight against injustice, he says, no, I'm going to take this one. Mm. Like mm -hmm. it's, this is not a just world and right. I'm going to make it just in my own way. It's right. not just for me to be up here on this cross, but because I'm willing to take that, you don't have to worry about that mm -hmm. part. And so in these, we see in, in like in these various reactions to mobs, we see God's promise of justice and, and the eventual, um, uh, triumph of good. Sure while also seeing grace, mm -hmm. you know, tremendous grace and understanding because when it comes right down to it in these other instances, we are the victims of the mob, but in one very specific instance, we're part of the mob mm -hmm. that does not understand who Jesus is and is saying, why don't you save yourself? Why aren't you saving me? What's the problem? You know what? Right. Put him up there. I, I yes. you know, he's not who I wanted him to be. Yeah. And so like at any given time, like we are, we are the victim of a very cruel world while absolutely being a part of it. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? We contribute to so many other people's sufferings in ways that we don't necessarily know or are yeah. attuned to. Um, and then at the same, at the same rate, we also suffer ourselves yeah. um, in ways that other people don't understand. I love his, I mean, it's the words of Jesus, but I love his phrasing. <laughs> it's like, it, I don't think I've never viewed this passage as him asking for forgiveness because they don't know what they do. Right. Uh, because I, you know, there, elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus forgives people who knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. So I don't think it's simply ignorance that compels him to plead for their forgiveness. But I do find it an interesting inclusion that he says, you know, they, 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 know, they know not what they do. And I feel like we ourselves in the conversation about conversations about race or politics or whatever, I love what you said that it's like we we often feel like we are up against a mob yeah. and lose sight of the fact that we are simultaneously a part of a mob. Yeah. We are perpetuating something at the same time that we feel as if we are up the, the lone figure up against a, a tide of something else. And I think uh, that's, a, that's an interesting consideration to look at what will our response be to the mob that we feel up against, what we would deem our enemies, yeah. compared to recognizing that we are also, you know, a part of something bigger, and and what are we going to do about that? What are yeah. we going to do about that other side of it? And what should our response be to um, to those those feelings of isolation, um, or in in the reverse of that, to those feelings of hey. I'm also perpetuating this other thing or I'm part of this bigger mob and I don't like yeah. where that's going. What can I do to try to, because yeah. at the same time, 
Um, and you, you didn't necessarily ask for all this to be drawn out and I hope Fine. I'm not going a, a skew of where you wanted to, but the two thieves that are, that are with yeah. him. So one of them, at first in the larger text of the scriptures, at first they both are kind of mocking him, yeah. but then one of them, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of comes to his senses and, yeah. and, and thinks differently about this man that he's being crucified next to. And, and I do think that we owe it to ourselves to, um, to recognize and to be honest and truthful about the times we do feel isolated and we feel like we are up against the swell. Yeah. But I think in that moment, that thief recognized, like, I've been, I've been part of this. Oh, yes. I've been, I've been. Uh, and if I weren't up here now, I might be a part of it yeah, now. I would be yeah. standing, I, I could easily be standing down there mocking this man, um, deriding this man, spitting on this man, and to come to his senses in that, in that sense. And uh, it's not part of this passage, but uh, in a similar fashion to what the centurion, his, his eyes become yeah. open to that. And, and some translations say, uh, or some sections of the scripture say, surely this man was the son of God. Some say simply, surely this was a righteous man. Mm -hmm. um, but he himself comes to that realization, recognize yeah. like, hey, the mob, as it were, sort of went one way and maybe maybe we all got it wrong or maybe the mob got it wrong yeah um and uh and i definitely think uh that it's important that we recognize both element both sides of that yes when we feel isolated uh again I'm, I'm very big on this language but just being honest about that being willing to stand up and say hey i'm, I'm kind of feeling alone here raising a flag or raising your hand as it were but then at the same time to recognize the ways that we so casually endorse yeah. um, whole mobs of mentality that, that cause suffering in other people. Yeah, that's, you know, and that's a big takeaway from Get Out is, you know, if you're a white person seeing this, and again, like, I'm just, I'm not trying to get specifically political, but, you know, given that the film is very racially uh, involved, you know, you can't help but see yourself. Like, who would I be in this situation? Right, right. It's like, well, demographically, I'd definitely be that family, and that's not great. Um, <laughs> right. But I think it's good to realize, what am I playing a role in mm -hmm. in the larger mob? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if so, can I break out of that? Mm -hmm. You know? But what I like is that, you know, looking at that, and then you look at something like Night of the Living Dead... And like, well, now the mob is against me. So now what, what kind of survivor am I being? I be, am I being Harry Cooper? Oh, right. right or am right, I right. being Ben? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you can always find, like, you can always find a way to play the victim and say, I don't deserve this mm -hmm. as one of the thieves says, or you could say, yeah, I, I, I kind of do deserve this. Yeah. Um, right. But thankfully, I don't have to bear the brunt of it, you know, mm -hmm. from a from a, a cosmic and spiritual standpoint. Sure. Right, right, right. So, yeah, I, I do think that, uh, you know, one of the great things about horror, about films in general, but about horror films specifically is that they tend to, especially if it's a survival based horror movie, mm -hmm. um, they tend to, you know, invite you to say, what would I do yeah. if I were in this situation? Uh and then when you infuse it with like political and cultural themes, it's what 
would I do in this specific situation and how do I fit into the larger thematic situation? Right. And right. so, uh, you know, but the good, the good news, I literally said good news. Yeah. All right. That's, I guess that's why it's called that. Um, but the good news of, of faith is that you don't have to let yourself be defined by the way you have fit into the mob before, or maybe being, you know, feeling a, like a very specific type of victim or feeling entitled one way or another. You don't have to let yourself be defined by that. Like sure. there is injustice in the world. Sometimes it's, it's put on you. Sometimes it's caused by you, but Jesus transcends that. And just like, like with this, you know, if you just say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, like that's, that's enough. Just recognizing, you know, this thief literally it, I think it's safe to say it's too late for him to uh, make amends. (laughs) Sure. There's not much he can do now in this world. Right. So the only thing he can do is look at pure righteousness combined with the injustice of Jesus death and right. say, this is bigger than me. So all I can do is look to you and hope you remember me. Yeah. And right, Jesus right. says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, those were some larger points to, to get out of, uh, to get out of, get out. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen the film, we've spoiled everything. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you know what, if you have seen the film, watch it again, I'm going to, Uh, I've only seen it once. Oh, really? uh, I've seen it twice now and it's, yeah, it's very, very good. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely want to watch it again and I think I will enjoy it tremendously. But anyway, uh, okay. So, uh, that's going to do it for week one of Halloween times. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed it and stay tuned for week two. Uh, in the meantime, you can always comment on this post at more than one lesson.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed lackey at Reed lackey. And of course, uh, tune into the fear of God to find out all about the listener voted, uh, best horror movies of the eighties. Yes. Um, and then, uh, I will also say for anybody interested, uh, I have started up my survivor podcast worth playing for once again hey. with me and, uh, my wife, Jenny, uh, it's looking like it's going to be a good season. So if you want to listen in and hear what we have to say, you can find that at battleshippretension.com. So anyway, uh, that's it. Reed, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.